Are you hungry? Y'all think that's just a joke. Daniel's saying, yes, I'm hungry. <laughs> Tonight we're going to begin the feast that Lady Wisdom worked so hard preparing for us. That banquet that she invited us to. We're going to look in Proverbs chapter 10. We're going to look at the first 11 verses tonight. As we move through the rest of the book, remember what we've learned so far and what we talked about last week. Fearing the Lord is both the doorway and the pathway to wisdom. Uh, and last week we talked about those different types of parallelisms that we see in Proverbs. And that's always the most important part of the proverb is just that immediate context. Sort of how the two halves work together. There may be connections with the surrounding verses. And we'll, we'll see some of that tonight. Um, but there's definitely going to be connection with the overall book of Proverbs and the rest of the Bible. And then finally, before we um, read a few verses, I want to challenge you to pick out at least one proverb that we read each week and memorize it. We're going to have memory verses. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. I'm not going to pick it out for you. Uh, but you decide which one uh, that, that you want to memorize and think about throughout the week and uh, I want to challenge you to do that. I'm going to do that with you uh, and challenge myself to do that. And so I think that will just be something that's beneficial to us to, uh, to hide the word in our heart. All right. So without further ado, here come the Proverbs of Solomon. And they're quick. Proverbs chapter 10. I'll read the first 11 verses and then we'll come back and break them down. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father... But a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who, gives in summer, uh, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Whoever winks with the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will come to ruin. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Let's start with the first five verses here, and let me give you sort of an overview of these, this first group, these first five verses. You, you saw when we read through them, each one of these proverbs are those antithetical or those contrast proverbs, which means uh, the first half and the second half uh, are contrasting each other. That's why you see the word but there to begin line B. And we also have something interesting in verse 1 and verse 5. They sort of form bookends because they both mention different types of children. You've got a wise and a foolish son in, in verse 1 and in verse 5 as well. And so that's why we're grouping these verses together. You could obviously pull each proverb out individually. You could isolate it from any context around it, and it's still going to be true. It's the Word of God. But there's definitely going to be some application we can see in a family setting with, with children. And so we'll see that. 
But with that in mind to start with, it's interesting to me that these very first Proverbs that we see serve as a reminder to us that our actions and our decisions affect other people. And I, I read one commentator who, he made a really good point. If you'll look back at chapter 9 and verse 12, this man says the first part of chapter 10 is the flip side of chapter 9 and verse 12, which says, If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Well, chapter 9 and verse 12 was the, was the verse that taught us that nobody can make your decisions for you. Nobody can force wisdom upon you. You have to decide for yourself if you're going to hear it, learn from it, and follow it. But now in chapter 10, we're going to see that even though nobody can make the decisions for you, your decisions still affect other people. Nobody lives in a bubble. One, uh, this same author said, Your choice may be lonely, but it cannot be private. Your decisions affect other people especially your family. So one author summarizes this group of Proverbs here, and he says the theme of the collection is that a family will thrive if the children are diligent in their work, but collapse if they are lazy or resort to crime. And we'll kind of see that as we move through here. And again, it doesn't have to always be applicable in a family situation. It can be other situations as well, uh, but we see that. So in verse 1, the first thing to note is that it's really easy to see the contrast between a wise son, a foolish son, between joy, between sorrow. But why does Solomon have the difference between a father and a mother? Is it because mothers are more emotional and they tend to be more hurt if their children do something wrong and dads just don't care? No, that has nothing to do with it at all. By mentioning both parents... It, it does strengthen the parallelism between the two halves of the sentence. But more than that, it emphasizes that the child's behavior and lifestyle affects the entire family. And if you're a parent, you know how true that is. Your child's attitude and actions drastically change the whole tenor of the home. It's... It's sort of impressive how much power one little person can have in a home. But we open ourselves up to that when we have children, when we have a family. That's something that makes us vulnerable, I guess, so to speak. One, one author said, What capacity for pain we take on when we hold our first child in our arms. But oh, how our opportunities for joys untold are expanded at the same time. Parents probably understand this more than children do because you were a child once and now you sort of see it from the other side. But if you're a child, you need to be aware that your attitude affects the whole attitude in the home. You didn't know you had that much power, did you? Or maybe you did. You have a lot of influence if you follow God's wisdom you'll bring joy to your whole household and I think we should note before we move on sort of the difference between a parent's pride 
and the parents joy. Sometimes we put them together, right? Oh, they're my pride and joy. But when we think about pride or something that, that makes a parent proud, you know if your child makes good grades, you're proud of them. If they, if they, if they succeed in sports or band or art or, or whatever, they're good. If they're good at something, you're, you're proud of them. Parents love to brag about their kids and their, their kids' accomplishments. And I'm no different. I'm the same. But there's something far better than those things. When a child is wise, when they fear the Lord, that brings joy to a parent. Making good grades might make your parents proud. Living wisely before God will bring them joy. In 3 John, verse 4, the Apostle John said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Now, John wasn't talking about physical descendants there. He was talking about those he had fathered spiritually, so to speak, those who he had taught. But the same idea is there. It's the parallel idea. There is so much joy when a young person, whether it's a child or, or someone you've taught in a Sunday school class or just helped at church or had any sort of influence over, when that person walks in God's truth, there, there is joy in that. Of course, the reverse is true. If you follow the world's foolishness, you'll bring sorrow upon your family. You won't bring joy to your parents. It's a very painful thing for parents when their children turn from God, whether at a young age or even at an older age. And that's something that's important is that even as the child grows up, the truth of verse 1 doesn't dissolve. It doesn't really change. It, it remains true throughout the different stages of life. And we sort of see that if we come to verse 2 and 3, if we continue the family theme in verse 2, we would see that when a child grows up, if he or she resorts to, to trying to get rich and trying to gain wealth through crime or dishonesty or wicked means, whatever that may be, it's going to hurt that family. It will bring shame, it will bring sorrow, and ultimately it will not profit. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. But righteousness delivers from death. Righteousness is more rewarding than gaining treasure through wicked means because there is a sovereign God over everything. Solomon's not saying that there's no temporary benefit to gaining treasure through wicked means. You might have more money. You might can do something you weren't able to do after you robbed that bank. You can take that trip you always wanted. There might be temporary benefits. But since there is a good, moral, just God over this universe, it will not pay. It's not worth it. Since God exists, wickedness isn't worth it. And that leads into verse 3, which is... If we group these five verses together, verse 3 sort of is the apex. It's, it, we were building to it, and then we're going to kind of descend down from it. This is, this is a huge point. It's very emphatic. And it reminds us that the sovereign God knows how to handle the wicked and how to take care of the righteous. 
Verse 3 says, The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. If you think, well, if I don't get stuff through wicked means, how am I going to survive? God will take care of you. The Lord doesn't let the righteous go hungry. So the question is, is essentially, will you trust yourself or will you trust God to provide for you? One or the other. Maybe we should think about it this way. Do you want God to take care of you? Or do you want to live in such a way that God has to take care of you? One way or the other, you cannot escape the sovereign God of the universe. Verse 3 makes me think of a few things that Jesus said during the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't this similar to one of the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. And in chapter 6 and verse 33 of Matthew, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If you make God the top priority in your life, isn't he a good shepherd? What did David say? I shall not want. I shall not lack. God will take care of you if you put him first. But as we move into verse 4 and 5, Solomon is careful to remind us that trusting in God to take care of you, that trusting in his righteousness righteousness does not mean that you get to be lazy and not work. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. The word slack here, one author explained it like this. He said it, it describes not necessarily the person who is completely inactive, but rather one who only half-heartedly does his job. He has a poor work ethic. This is is the person that, maybe they work when the boss is looking, but then when the boss turns their back, their hand goes limp. That's slack. There's no power there, no strength there. You might have worked with someone like that before. Drives you crazy, doesn't it? You compare someone like that who does not have a hard work ethic to this diligent person who takes their job seriously. They take their employment seriously. And someone who does that, not only will it bring joy to the family, bring joy to the parents, know their child's a hard worker instead of a lazy bum, but God will bless that. God blesses that. Hard work is a very biblical, godly, wise thing. Always give your best when you're doing something. Verse 5 teaches essentially the same truth as verse 4. It just uses the imagery of agriculture, okay, planting and harvesting to illustrate the truth. Verse 5 again, He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Not only does laziness lead to poverty, but now in verse 5 we see that it will bring disgrace and shame upon your family. It's a son who brings shame. So now we sort of have the bookends. Verse 1 and verse 5, maybe tying this group together about children who either bring joy or sorrow. Prudence or or shame, one or the other. One commentator said, if poverty is no disgrace, slackness is. 
and you have the good name of others to consider, son, besides your own. And this is true today. Still true. Laziness does not make your family look good. There's nothing wrong with being poor. That's not what Solomon is saying here. There is something wrong with being lazy. You especially think of the context that this was written in, ancient Israel, a very agricultural uh, and, and uh, agricultural society, and children were essentially the workforce. When a parent had children, they were going to grow up to, to work the fields and be the shepherds like David was. They, they, were, going, they were the workforce. If you had a lazy workforce, it's going to be really bad for the family business and bad for the family farm and bad for the family flock. It's going to bring, bring disgrace. And it's still true today. Whether you're a, a 14, 15, 16-year-old getting your first job, work hard. Or whether you're 50, still working. 70, 80, 90, still working. Work as hard as God gives you the ability to do it. That'll bring joy to your family. All right. We're going to group 6 through 11 together. And the reason uh, some people group these together, similar to what we just looked at, is verse 6 and verse 11. They both end with the same phrase, this, the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. So you can see that in verse 6 and 11. So maybe, maybe it forms those bookends uh, once again. And if you look in verse 6, the first part of the proverb is, is pretty easy to understand. Blessings are on the head of the righteous. And that refers back to the, this ancient Israel, uh, ancient uh, Hebrew way of blessing someone. They would normally put their hands on, on, the, on the head of someone and, you know, pronounce a blessing or say what they were going to say about him. And that was considered something very official. Um, it wasn't... It wasn't a secret. They didn't try to necessarily hide, hide the fact of the blessing. Even if the blessing wasn't necessarily a, a public event, people were aware of it. Especially if and when the blessings came to fulfillment, when they, when they happened, and when the, the prophecies were fulfilled or things like that. The blessings were obvious. And so the idea here is blessings are on the head of the righteous. There's, there's obvious blessings of righteousness. There's this... Even public awareness of this. And I think that, that idea of this public awareness might help us with the second half of the verse and the parallelism. Because it's, it's tough and there's some different opinions. Some take this phrase at the second part of verse 6. The mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Some take it to mean that a wicked person doesn't really say what they mean. Right? They, they conceal their motives. Well, that can surely be true. So a lot of wicked people aren't going to tell you they're wicked. They're going to conceal it. But that may not be what Solomon meant here or in verse 11. And we'll get there later. If that's what Solomon meant, I don't, I don't quite get the parallel. And it really depends on how you translate this part of the verse and how you interpret the word conceal. The word conceal there essentially just means to cover. And covering can be for different reasons. It can mean that you're trying to hide something. It, it, it's a word that actually can refer to forgiveness. 
it can refer to just something being totally covered in something. Um, it was used when Egypt was covered in frogs during one of the plagues, okay? So it wasn't that Egypt was hiding, but the frogs were pretty obvious. They, it was covered in frogs. So this is how two very famous Hebrew scholars translate verse 6. And notice specifically the second half. Blessings come on the head of the just, but violence covers the mouth of the godless. And that's a pretty favorable translation because it preserves the sharp contrast between line A and line B. So think with me here. Line A talks about how a righteous person is just covered in blessings. Line B says a wicked person is covered in violence. That is a sharp contrast that, that makes sense there. So it may not be, some think it is, it may not be though that they're concealing their violence, but they're covered in it. Kind of like a child in a mud pit. He's not trying to hide himself, he's just obviously dirty. There's mud everywhere, covered in it. So while it's true that oftentimes wicked people do conceal their true motives, even with their speech, that may not be Solomon's point here. It may just be the obvious and apparent nature of righteousness and blessings versus wickedness and violence. Um, it's, a debated, it's a debated thing. It depends on how you, how you translate that. But the idea of this public awareness, this perception, sort of runs through a few more of these, these group of Proverbs, at least, at least with a few more of them. Look at um, how verse 7 and 9 are going to work together to give us another bit of this public perception, one during life and maybe even one after life. Look at verse 7. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. That's a very public thing, is, is what people think about you and how, how you're remembered, how they talk about you after you're gone. The memory of the righteous, he says, is a, that's a blessing. Along those lines of the memory of a righteous person being a blessing, think about the Bible. How much of a blessing is it to know something about the life of Joseph and David, Moses, Abraham, Ruth, Esther, these men and women of the Bible who, were, who demonstrated righteousness because of their faith in God and, and they, they obeyed and there were ups and downs in their lives, sure, but the, their memory, it's a blessing to us. I think the entire chapter of Hebrews 11 is an entire chapter illustrating this proverb. And we know it's not limited to just the Bible. It's blessing for us in our lives to have memories of, of righteous people that we knew who have since passed on. That's a blessing to think about them, though. It's encouraging to think about those people. On the other hand, the legacy or the reputation, the public perception of the wicked person, what they leave behind... Solomon says it will rot. It's disgusting. It's decaying. It's corrupt. So verse 7, we see this idea of sort of this public perception a little bit. If you skip verse 8, look at verse 9. We'll see something similar as well. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. That's a public thing. You'll be found out. Um, You'll be known. It will be exposed, so to speak. 
And you say, well, but, but line A talks about integrity, Brother Matt. That's, that's your inner character. Well, I won't argue with that. But he said, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. So there's a lifestyle about this. People can see the way you walk. Not just if you have a limp or if you strut or if you, you know, walk fast, but your lifestyle. People see how you live. And the person who lives, lives in integrity, there's some security there. But a person who is crooked, they'll be exposed. Verse 8 and 10, they work together as well. And they sort of both deal with communication. I don't want to force the public awareness idea here, but it may come across a little bit in these verses since we obviously communicate with other people. But if you look in verse 8, the wise of heart will receive commandments. That means you're teachable. Okay? If you're truly wise, then you know that you don't know it all. If you're truly wise, you want to be taught. You will receive commandments. But the second part of the verse, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Essentially, Solomon is saying that a fool won't stop talking when he should be listening. A wise person is teachable. They listen. A fool won't shut his or her mouth long enough to hear anything. We've got our own proverb that's along those same lines. God gave you two ears and one mouth. You ought to listen more than you talk. You ever heard anybody tell you that? That's our American proverb of, the, of, of this uh, proverb of Solomon. And that's even more true when we approach God's word. James said, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Let God teach you. Don't argue with him. If you're, if you're constantly talking, you can't listen. But a wise person's very teachable. A foolish person won't take a breath to even hear from God. And with the idea of communication, look at verse 10 and 11 now. Verse 10 should sort of stand out because it's the only one in the group here that is not antithetical. It's not a contrast proverb. Um, your your translation of the Bible probably has the word and in verse 10 instead of the word but. And even if you read the verse, you can see there's no contrast. Verse 10, whoever winks the eye causes trouble and a babbling fool will come to ruin. There's no contrast there between a, a winker and a babbler. What Solomon is doing is adding something to it. It's what we called last week that synthetic proverb. So line A warns us about this deceitful, nonverbal communicator. He, he winks the eye. And if you remember back in Proverbs 6 when we talked about the one who sows discord, this is one way they do it with their nonverbal communication. They, they point with their feet and shift around and they wink and they try to get you to doubt someone else. And now Solomon's sort of bringing that idea back up. So he's saying in line A, be warned about the person who tries to communicate deceptively, non-verbally. But line B adds to the warning, 
But definitely beware of the person who never stops talking deceptively. For sure beware of that person. A babbling fool will come to ruin. That's even more destructive. We might think about it that way. So verse 10, we had this first, first proverb that didn't contrast itself, which leads into verse 11, which is just sort of this, this crown jewel of this, uh, of this section of Proverbs because of how powerful the imagery is of a fountain of life. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. But the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. There's that same phrase again. Fountain of life. Have you ever thought about your speech that way? A fountain of life. That's what should describe your communication. It should describe your mouth. Your words should just overflow with blessings for other people. Like a cool stream of water on a hot day. How great of an illustration is this written in the Middle East? Some desert areas, some places that can suffer droughts. Water was and still is extremely valuable. Solomon says that's what the words of a righteous person are. This fountain of life. One author said they are morally strengthening, intellectually elevating, and inwardly quickening. Jesus used the idea of, of flowing waters to describe people believing in him, to describe the Holy Spirit's indwelling of those believers, blessings that flow from that. So on the one hand, line A of, of verse 11, line A, you have someone who is an obvious blessing to others. Their speech is a fountain of life. Line B, though, you have this wicked person whose words and life overflow with violence. They're covered with it. Once again, line B of verse 11, and this phrase, the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Some people take that to mean they don't mean what they say and that they are concealing their motives. But it could be translated again with that same idea that their mouths are covered with violence, that violence covers their mouth. Again, if you pick up two commentaries, you might find two answers. But that seems to fit with the contrast in the parallel. That a righteous person is covered in blessing, obviously blessing other people, while a wicked person is covered in violence, obviously not blessing other people. Either way that you take, you know, the end of verse 6 and the end of verse 11 there with the concealing. We want our speech and our lives to be covered with and overflowing with obvious blessings for other people. For our family, first five verses, sure, yes. For our church, yes. For everybody. Not limited. It's a fountain of life. All right. So I'm going to sum it up here, and then we'll um, see if you guys have any questions or comments about this last, about this last group. But 
Um, looking at these rapid fire truth nuggets is very different. I think you, hopefully you've seen that tonight. It's going to be an interesting study moving forward. Please, please pray for me. Um, each one can be isolated and is true in and of itself. There's sometimes maybe connections in a, in a smaller group. Um, as we end tonight, before I ask for a discussion, though, I want to just very pointedly ask you if you are wise based on these verses. Are you following God's wisdom? Are you bringing joy or sorrow to your family? Are you more concerned with righteousness or riches? Are you a lazy person or a hard worker? And what is the obvious message that covers you? What do your words and your walk offer to this world? Are you wise?